Hey everyone, I'm Caitlin Endo from Students Rising Above, and this is How I Made My Path. This podcast is dedicated to amplifying the voices of diverse working professionals. Every episode, you'll hear exclusive conversations that bridge experiences between students and professionals, offer new insights on career paths, and uncover ways of unlocking your full potential. These professionals made their own paths. You can too. Take it from them. For this episode of How I Made My Path, we're joined by SRA alumni Maria Bernal. Maria is currently a health reporter and social media marketing coordinator for the Richmond Pulse. She was recently admitted to the School of Journalism at UC Berkeley and will be attending this fall as a master's student. Congratulations, Maria. She also earned her bachelor's degree from San Jose State University in public health. Maria is a social justice advocate, Mexican immigrant, DACA recipient, and first-generation college graduate. In this episode, she shares about the connections between her research background and reporting, as well as the intersection of activism and journalism. This is how Maria made her path. Welcome, Maria. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Um, And before I kind of dive into my questions, do you mind sharing a little bit about yourself? I'm very excited to be participating in SRA's podcast. SRA has grown so much since um, I started with them. Mm -hmm. I am a documented Latina Richmond resident. My name is Maria Fernanda Bernal. I am professionally known as Maria Bernal, and I am known as Marifer by the community. Great. Thank you so much. And yeah, super excited to have you on here. So one of the opening questions that I like to ask is just how would you describe your career path? Currently, I'm a journalist. I am the health community reporter for the Richmond Pulse. I'm also a freelance uh, reporter for radio stations. I am going to start my master's at the UC Berkeley School of Journalism, and my path has been completely connected in some shape or form, even though it has changed drastically. So in high school, I really wanted to become a doctor, a heart surgeon specifically. And so I went to San Jose State and um, I started my major in health science, thinking I wanted to go and get my doctor's doctorate afterwards 
And while there, I realized that there's so many other ways to help people and specifically my community, the undocumented community that lives here in Richmond. And how did how did I go from health to <laughs> journalism? <laughs> I my senior year, I was a research assistant at San Jose State University and at Stanford. And I thought that that was really cool to write, um, be able to write research articles that will eventually help develop policies or create systematic change that will that will provide a healthier space for people to live in. Um, writing articles, <laughs> science articles is really, really dry and um, it takes a lot of years, a lot of funding. If you can find the funding, the resources are very scarce for um, projects that involve people of color. And I was getting very frustrated with not being able to move at the pace I wanted to and be able to reach my community and help the community to the extent that I wanted to. And mm-hmm. so I got reached out by my now editor um, who asked me to write a piece on DACA. It was a commentary piece on what it's like to be DACA in the Trump administration. And I realized that I could still write um, about health and things that matter to my community. And eventually these articles can can turn into change um, at a systematic level. And there's so much more freedom in writing these articles, um, especially with my, my newsroom. Um, have a lot of flexibility to talk about whatever topics that I want to talk about. So mental health, you know, air quality, um, mm-hmm. water quality, um, you know, everything under the sun that affects black and brown bodies, I am able mm-hmm. to tackle. So even though I didn't become a doctor, I'm I'm still in the health arena. For sure. I think that's awesome that you're able to kind of connect the dots between those two things that obviously you're very passionate about and knowledgeable about. Um, I've actually had a chance to read a few of your featured pieces in the Richmond Pulse, and it seems like you've reported on some really heavy stuff that are top of mind for a lot of folks, including myself. So for a little context for listeners, um, some of the articles I've read that you've written, Maria, um, include like the effects of COVID-19, like the pandemic on things like funerals and pregnancy and the increased um, vulnerability to uh, COVID-19 for communities like Richmond and the disproportionate effects of COVID-19 on Black folks. And you also wrote a piece titled Black Liberation is Latinx Liberation too, which I really enjoyed reading. So I'm kind of wondering how these experiences have been like for you in the reporting bit, you know, they are really heavy topics um, and impactful topics. Um, So I'm just curious what that experience is like for you. This is super nerdy, but they've been some of some pieces have been very exciting to mm-hmm. work on like the funeral piece. It was a um, when my editor put that idea out. It sounded like a very morbid story, um, but as I started to dive into it, I realized that there were so many layers, so many things that just didn't correlate in that piece that I'm, that we're currently talking about. Through my investigation, I found that funeral numbers weren't matching the um, the death count that the county had posted. So mm-hmm. at that time, there was a total of three people that had died. So this was the very beginning of the pandemic, and Um, when I was talking to the funerals just here in Richmond alone, they had dozens of people who had passed away from COVID. And it really showcased how, how bad the pandemic had, you know, impacted uh, the people living here in Richmond alone. I I, I didn't look into the county, but you can only imagine, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Working on these other pieces, like 
Latinx Liberation is Black um, Liberation too. That one was, I think, I got, I did get a lot of, I get, I did get some backlash from, mm-hmm. um, from some Latinos, but I think that piece was very much needed because I think in order for us to elevate as a society, we need to take accountability for the privileges that we hold, and as Latinos, we do hold some form of privilege. And so understanding that and collaborating with our Black brethren, we can unitely work towards the same goal that we have and to surpass and defeat this same source that is oppressing all of us. It was a, (laughs) that piece took me about like a month to write Mm -hmm. because it was very hard to like balance, like walking a very thin line when you're talking about systematic racism and you're talking about these two ethnic groups that have historically been in conflict before. So it was, we were, uh, we were about, <laughs> we were so close not to post that, um, the article just because it was so frustrating to explain to people, um, many of these, many of the things mentioned in that article are things that people who took Chicano classes know, but not, that's not, that's not information that's available to everybody. Mm-hmm. And so I had to do it in such a way that I'm able to compress all of this historical information, combine modern day systems and somehow feed it <laughs> very like comprehensively to people. My writing is supposed to be uh, it's supposed to be, you know, a fifth grader can read it. Mm-hmm. So I'm supposed to, you know, write these things so it's digestible to our Yeah, our I mean, I, I read it tricky. and I think you did a great job. I've done my own reflecting, but none of my reflections necessarily are, you know, public. So I would imagine as a journalist, you know, aside from your own opinion, like trying to get everything, um, like you mentioned, writing in a way that's digestible, um, that also honors all the historical context um, that plays into the situation. I can imagine it's, it's pretty challenging, but I think you did a great job on that piece. Um, So taking just a little step back, I'm kind of curious, you mentioned, you know, you were planning on being a doctor when you were in high school and in college, you pursued kind of that health career path. I'm curious what the switch was um, as far as like the transition between college and career when you did start, you know, pursuing journalism as a career path. Um, How was that transition from college to career for you? I started my activism, I wouldn't even call it career, but just lifestyle mm-hmm. in high school. And I had so much space to be an activist and go to protest and become more involved in the movement mm-hmm. in college. And so that time when, especially during the Trump, uh, when Trump became right. elected, it was a very, it was a, it's been a, it's been a very politically terrifying world for undocumented people to be living in mm-hmm. for people that look like immigrants. It's been a very terrifying time. And so um, I wanted to initially become a doctor because I wanted to provide um, high quality care for my community. But entering, you know, and under, entering college and understanding that there's so many layers that go into what the doctor does. The doctor is so limited to how many patients they have and the quality that they offer because maybe the system is pushing so many um, patients at them that they don't have enough time to just really get to know um, individual patients at a personal personal level. And Mm -hmm. so I was like, you know what? I want to do it. I want to help these doctors (laughs) so that they can help my people. And then I realized, wait, there's people who who are like controlling, not controlling, but 
you know, directing these policymakers and the people controlling them are part of the government. And mm-hmm. so I was like, okay, I want to become involved in the government and, you know, enter like a bureaucracy. And this is the bureaucracy is, um, you know, centuries old. It's like, it, right. it's, you know, there's individuals like Ocasio-Cortez who are making change in in their bureaus and in their own areas. Um, but it's so difficult to try to change a system that is intended to oppress people of color mm-hmm. and has historically done so. So I, re- I realized that through journalism, I am able to hold these systems accountable, all these levels that I had mentioned, I'm able to hold them accountable so that they are able to, so that they are doing their job because we are paying, you know, our taxes go to all these different levels. And as a journalist, I'm able to say, are you actually using our dollars to help us? And if you're not, Mm -hmm. then we're going to talk about it. Yeah. And like having those conversations are so important. Um, The media, like I think I wasn't aware until Trump was elected how greatly the media can play into um, just the political environment and culture um, that's adopted by the people. And I was in college as well when he was elected. Um, and it there was definitely a shift in feeling safe or not safe, which I know I have a level of privilege as well. Um, and so that definitely shift, shifted my perspective. Um, you mentioned you were DACA and like un, um, undocumented student during that time. Are you comfortable speaking to that experience, like being in school during that time period? During that time, um, it was completely uh, nerve wracking. I remember, I remember SRA had this event. It was like a career event. Yeah, it was like yeah. a mock career <laughs> fair and they had brought like a lot of, um, you know, people from different um jobs to come and talk to us and we could go up and interview them and my I didn't honestly I did not want to attend because my mind was so occupied with the safety Mm -hmm. of my family and how essentially the life that I'm living is temporary and could be easily taken away with the sign of a paper um so I was going through a lot mentally I was stressing a lot apart from the responsibilities I had in college I remember seeing, uh, making eye contact with another SRA student who I knew was Saka. And and we're going up to him like, are you okay? And we just like broke down crying in the middle of this fair. (laughs) Because, yeah, it was just so hard. And I don't think anyone could understand that. And I'm not trying to, you know, post blame to SRA, but because I was part of the first class who, who accepted DACA recipients. So even if, you know, we were offered help, you wouldn't even know where to start. How do you help someone or like, how do you, how do you help someone who, whose life is in in limbo, who essentially is going to school, but all of that can be taken away. And yeah, you're working so hard for, for your classes and for your grades, but what does that matter? Because the future is so uncertain and um, his following was, you know, his following is infamous chaotic um and dangerous at times especially the language and um actions they take towards immigrants it's you know it's it's a xenophobic movement and so being an immigrant during that time was completely nerve-wracking but (laughs) we just had to keep pushing (laughs) essentially Mm -hmm. yeah there was no other option but 
for us to just keep our head up high and keep moving. And I know that sounds super cheesy, but it was it, it also explains why so many people in my class um, had a more difficult time doing normal human activities. The the political climate really impacted us in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think anyone can really know what that feels like unless you're in that situation and like the amount of stress involved with everything that you know you you take for granted um, or I would take for granted. Thank you for sharing that for our for our community. I think it's important too to like, you know, always continue to grow and assess. And you mentioned, you know, SRA did not do a very good job of making everyone feel safe at that event. So thank you for mentioning that. I think it's important to continue moving forward um, with that growth in mind. So I mentioned like transitioning from college to career. What would you say you enjoy most about your job? And then maybe on the flip side, like what's the most challenging? I'm going to talk about this one experience that happened this past weekend. It was the anti-Chevron day and um, I covered it. There was a, a line of activists that were sitting down and pressed against the, the gates the main gate of Chevron. And when we got there, Chevron had sent their fire department. So it was like a fire truck and they had taken out the water hose and they had threatened the activists with, you know, to hose them down. So I approached one of the activists and I started interviewing her. And as I was interviewing her, they were like pushing against these activists and then cops had arrived so there was like you know there was a threat of being washed out you know washed off our equipment but also like I had to keep my head in the game and just focus on you know getting an interview from this activist who was in the midst of chaos and she refused to move that that was very powerful so moments like that um being able to capture historical moments and record document these events are happening in our community that are, are very monumental to our growth as, as a city, as mm-hmm. people, and as a community. It's very empowering. Also to speak on the injustices that happen, um, it's very fulfilling to be able to call that out using my platform. Um, what hasn't been so, I guess, the thing I don't like most is writer's block, because <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the worst thing you can have as a writer. It's having writer's block. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That sucks because you need that. <laughs> to <Yeah. write. laughs> Are there things that you do to kind of like unblock the writer's block? The best advice for writer's block is just to write. Even if it doesn't make sense, just write. Even if the words and the grammar and the structure is completely off and the semicolon is not where it's supposed to be, just keep writing. And then eventually it'll start just flowing out yeah, definitely. Also, like, um, I, it was I covered the Bernie rally when he came to the Richmond Pavilion. Yeah, we had to get that out ASAP. And so that was very intense because um, I was among other media outlets mm-hmm. at the East Bay Times, the SF Chronicle. We had a couple of uh, broadcasting stations on, on, on the site. And so it was very stressful working amongst these journalists who are already, you know, who have been in the game for a long time um, and trying to keep up. Yeah, that was um, really cool, but also like very stressful and intimidating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sounds super duper fast paced. 
if you don't mind, could you share more of kind of what your day-to-day looks like? Because it seems like, you know, you get to attend these community events um, and report out on it. But what does like the day-to-day look like for you? It totally depends on what kind of story I'm writing. Mm-hmm. So if because of COVID, we're we're not going out as much as we used to. Mm-hmm. So many of these interviews I can do on the phone. And at these events, usually um, I'll, I'll team up with um, our photographer and we'll head out on site. We'll try to arrive early, try to get a, a sense of things um, for the anti-Chevron day. We stayed even after the last activist left because the activists had painted a mural in the front entrance of Chevron and we wanted to get a picture of them removing the paint. So we we stuck around for a couple hours afterwards. Um, we did leave because, you know, it, we're the media. So, you know, they we waited until, you know, they they thought nobody was going to come back and then we came back. So it does, for those kinds of events, it does extend um, past the past the event hours and I think it's I think it's worth it because you get really good content for these other articles um for these other stories I used to meet up people at the coffee shop or um because coffee shops are usually quiet so um my my recorder can pick up audio better and transcribe it more clearly and it's less work for me to do yeah oh yeah transcribing I forgot to talk about that so before I used to record everything and then transcribe it by hand and by ear. And that would take a lot of hours because you have to get everyone's word clearly. Now I have a program that does it for me. And if it doesn't pick it up clearly, I'm able to go by hand and do it. It saves me hours. It was very tedious work. Yeah, so you, so after um, an event happens or um, I'm done interviewing somebody, I will... Um, get the, the interview and put it into um, a document and start just like setting up the article. And as I'm there and as I'm talking to people, I start already organizing the article, if that makes sense. I'm, I'm starting mm-hmm. to, I'm, I start to organize it in my head as people are, are talking and the angles sometimes change. Um, the story might, the story subject might stay, still stay the same, but it can change depending on what people say. And sometimes what people say may require more investigation or more research. It might be that, you know, they mentioned something that is, is very important that needs to be highlighted. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of research that goes into it. Doing um, research on like topics can be connecting with um, departments. Um, it can be contacting uh, professionals or experts in whatever field it is. Um, so calling doctors, offices, the county, organizations, and getting a hold of of spokespersons. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's what that's what it looks like. Yeah, it sounds like it could potentially be a really long process. And it seems like you're like a very focused person. Like you mentioned, amidst the chaos at an event, you're still able to go in there and do your job and do it well. What are some things that you feel like makes a good journalist um, in general? I think a main part is integrity. Um, I think that integrity, especially during the, the Trump um, presidency, kind of went out the window with uh, CNN and Fox News. They completely, I guess, like not destroyed, but they definitely gave journalists a bad representation. Not all journalists are going to 
you know, they're TV, so they're supposed to, you know, give exciting and dramatic and show like content because they get more money the more time they have people on watching them. So there have been occasions where people are like, oh, so you're, how do you know, how do I know that what you're telling us is true? It's like, well, you know, Fox News tells us this stuff and it's not true. Or CNN comes and, you know, blows up a a number. And it's like, I totally understand that. That's frustrating for us too, as journalists, because it sometimes in in some occasions, like um, I know some of my colleagues that had to cover Trump rallies, it was very hard to get a hold of people who wanted to talk to them because um, the people attending the show probably like, I'm not going to talk to the media. You guys are liars. And it's like, dude, we're trying to get what you're trying to say. Yeah, I didn't mention that. Um, we're supposed to be unbiased in the work that we do, but that's not always the case. We try to be as unbiased as we possibly can, despite us having our own individual opinions and political preferences. The work that we put out has to be as is. So when we're covering, for example, stories around defunding the police, we have to talk to the police. We have to get their stories. And we also have to get word from the community or activists who are trying to defund the police. And so um, sometimes people aren't happy with the work that we put out, but it is what it is if that makes sense it's what is on the table and the work that we put out has to essentially be unbiased and it's for people to read and for people to create their own opinions on the matter we shouldn't have to convince anybody of anything that's not our job our job is to report on factual things and things that are currently happening that's a great point I think it's like the first time that facts like actual facts were like questioned. Um, And I do think it's in part just how the media has been for the past few years. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. So you mentioned that you are going to be attending UC Berkeley for master's in journalism. Congratulations. That's super exciting. Um, Can you speak to why you decided to go back to school to get your master's um, and maybe just like the process of applying to grad school versus how it was for undergrad? When I wanted to go straight into my master's my senior year of my undergrad and Mm -hmm. one of my professors was like, dude, chill. (laughs) (laughs) and <laughs> chill out Maripa. Mm-hmm. you I recommend you wait two years go mm-hmm. work go find out something that you're really passionate about because what you're passionate about now may completely change in the in the workforce mm-hmm. and what we teach you here is so different from actually doing the work mm-hmm. um so he's like you know chill go <laughs> go have fun enjoy you just did four years and I was like damn no dude I I I, I want to keep going I want to keep going I don't know if Trump is going to get another four years. I kind of want to get as much as education as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. And I took his advice. I was applying for Stanford uh, School of Public Health my senior year of undergrad. And after his advice, I was like, maybe he I should listen to it. And so <laughs> I'm really glad that I did and that I took two years off because I'm getting my master's in journalism. I was thinking about doing a dual, doing um, my master's of in journalism with public health, um, I'm still able to write about public health without having to get that dual master's. So mm-hmm. I just I decided to keep master's in journalism by itself. 
I got a fellowship last winter through the Richmond Poles. It's the first time they did a collaboration with the J School. And I took a class in environmental reporting. And my professor was super cool. And he was like, Manifair, why haven't you applied? And I was like, because I don't know. <laughs> I think people can understand what I'm even having. I don't know. Because, you know, I was, this wasn't in my plans. And he's like, you know, the, the application is due in a couple of weeks. It was actually like, I think a month where the application was due. And I was like, man, I don't even know if I'm going to have enough time or finding the letters of recommendation at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, but somehow I put everything together, writing my um, writing my letter of intention was so hard. Um, I was facing a lot of, what, oh, what, what is it called again? Imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. I was facing a lot of imposter syndrome and it was very hard for me to like, speak to the accomplishments that I had and it still is kind of hard especially you know with I think our culture um the Latino culture is it's more like you know it's humble you got to be humble like you know like quiet down you know you no one wants to hear that but in this case you do you do need to talk about all the accomplishments that you're doing because it's essential heart how else are they gonna know right mm-hmm. um yeah and then I got um a call from Gita Anand, who is the dean at UC Berkeley in March. Uh, it was like a week after my birthday. It was like around 10 a.m. I was watching like watching YouTube mm-hmm. and I got a call from Berkeley and she's like, hey, I just wanted to let you know that, you know, you've been admitted. And I was like, girl, I thought you're playing, you're playing because you're supposed to send a letter and mm-hmm. this isn't a letter. <laughs> she's like, no, I'm not joking <laughs> um this is this is a I, I wanted to call you personally before you get the letter we're really hoping wow. to have you um this fall your your resume is, is very impressive we think you're very impressive we really like the work that you do we hope that you consider coming you know and I was like oh this girl thought I applied to more than one school <laughs> <laughs> I was like, girl, you're fighting to have me at your school, but it jokes on you. You're the only <laughs> one I applied to. <laughs> what a great um, belated birthday gift. Yeah, it was such a, a beautiful be- uh, belated birthday from the cosmos and the universe. I, Apart from that, I also got awarded by the graduate school. So I will have my first year completely covered as well as my second year. So finances was definitely on the top of my head. And I was really worried about that. And I was like, I'm going to take out some loans. Like if I made it this far, Mm -hmm. I'm going to take out loans, you know, what the heck. But I got, um, I got awarded with uh, financial aid. So it's definitely where I'm supposed to be. So despite there being a lot of change to what I wanted to do in high school, I remained open to the different changes and allowed just things to go with the flow. Um, before I became a journalist, I was looking for jobs, um, you know, bureaucratic jobs, mm-hmm. and I wasn't getting them. And I didn't understand why. And I was getting so frustrated because I met the requirements. I, my resume was, you know, like perfect. I always made it to like the final like um, interviewing process. And I wouldn't get the job. I remember talking to my um, to Kendall, who who's my um, college counselor, and I was like, I don't, I don't understand. And she's like, you know, just you know, let it go, go look for other ones. And I'm so glad that I didn't get these jobs because if I would have gotten these jobs, 
I wouldn't have gone, I wouldn't have applied to UC Berkeley. I wouldn't be in the process of getting my master's at UC Berkeley, much less doing so in a full scholarship. Mm-hmm. So yes, it was so frustrating. And I'll be honest, there were some jobs that I really wanted and I cried when I didn't get them. I'm so happy now that I didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely everything's, uh, so going with the flow is very hard because, um, you know, stop trying to fight the current that is mm-hmm. life and allow yourself to just get swept by it because you don't know where that's going to lead you. I had no idea that I, I never imagined that I'd be getting my master's in much less in journalism and at UC Berkeley. Yeah. Yeah. Huge, huge kudos to you. I got like goosebumps when you said you were awarded the scholarships because that's a huge deal too. And obviously you've worked really hard and deserve to be there. So, so happy for you and really excited to see what's to come. Um, Is there anything that you're really looking forward to being back in school, getting your master's? I'm really looking forward to working with like-minded people. Mm-hmm. My newsroom is small and I'm currently the only woman of color in my newsroom. And at one point I was the only woman. So I love hanging out with the dudes. You know, my, my <laughs> colleagues are awesome. I love hanging out with the bros, but it is nothing like connecting with another for myself, another woman of color who has undergone the same systematic challenges. And able to speak to those kinds of experiences is so different. Um, Taking that one class at UC Berkeley through the fellowship was very inspiring because I I did get to meet a lot of women who are doing a lot of great work. So I'm really excited to work with these people who are in different areas of journalism. So they might be doing broadcasting, print, TV, um, might be, you know, working for Netflix or PBS. KPIX, CBS, <laughs> you know, who, who, what have you. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to be working with these people who, who also come from different countries. They put us in the group chat with all the people that are getting admitted. And there was this person who, um, who's, who's coming to California from, from England and they work at the BBC um, and I think that's so cool. This other woman, she's coming from Nigeria. She's doing the, she's working at the national newspaper. And it's very, um, very exciting to be working with these people from different backgrounds. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm very, <laughs> oh, my, my professors too. I, this is a great opportunity to meet new mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, my, my career might completely shift being there. I currently am doing print and a little bit of broadcasting. I'm really looking forward to doing some more multimedia work. Um, but I don't know. I'm like I said, I'm going with the flow. Yeah. That's definitely a skill. <laughs> not my strong suit going with the flow. It's hard to like not have a plan, but like have a plan and also kind of let yourself be free of that, you know? Um, So that's, that's really cool, though, that you're going to be meeting all these amazing people and getting to collaborate with, you know, like minded people. It'll be so awesome. So excited for you. Thank you. Yeah, girl. It's so I I, it's so hard. I totally get what you're saying. It's like having a plan because you Mm -hmm. don't want to like, not have a plan. (laughs) Yeah, not have a plan and be homeless and be unhappy with the work that you do. Mm -hmm. But also not stressing yourself out so much that you become unhappy and jaded in the process. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that last bit is definitely where I was at at the end of my undergrad experience. And I definitely had to take a step back and and figure out what was important to me and like what actually made me happy versus just like keeping my head down and like getting to the next destination, you know? Um, So yeah, but thank you for sharing that. It's like great, just great advice for life, um, let alone, you know, a career. So I hope folks uh, keep that in mind. At this point, you mentioned, you know, you're going to be doing studying for print and multimedia, maybe a little bit and broadcast. Um, At this point in your career, do you have a dream job in mind or like an ultimate career goal down the line that you're shooting for? Well, I'm going to say this one because this is what I put in my (laughs) my Berkeley application. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know uh, if, you know the admin is going to be listening to this that I want to be a editor who who have what have you um that's what I want to do right now I really look up to my editor at the Richmond Polls my both of them they are completely amazing people I think that there's so many magazines that require a lot of that require a, a change in in outlook on how they do their work um, one magazine that I'm really, I really like is uh, Teen Vogue. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, they have amazing articles about social justice and activism. Mm-hmm. They're so woke and they are a completely different magazine than what they were when I was a teenager, you know, before it was like, oh, what shade of lipstick is gonna like attract your you know, you're in the crush, right. you know, and then you take a little, qu- you know, a questionnaire and it turns out, you know, the shade <laughs> of red is most likely to attract Brad. <laughs> and now it's like the questionnaires are like, oh, what kind of like political activist are you? Are you radical or are you like, you know, yeah. like, complete um, culture shift, complete culture shift. And I think a lot of these magazines and media outlets need that because they are not representative of our country and the people that live in it. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah, the unique perspective of folks, it's so important. And so representation in those spaces are super important. Um, kind of with that in mind, what do you think employers in the industry can do to support or encourage like first-gen, low-income, typically marginalized folks to be successful in the media space um, or in journalism spaces? Shout out to Berkeley because, you know, they did this collaboration with the Richmond Pulse that the, the people in my newsroom are from the community mm-hmm. um, and that we are low income and them providing me with an award knowing that I'm, you know, I'm poor. And I told them in my application, <laughs> I am poor. <laughs> <laughs> I am brown and I'm poor and I need help. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're offering it to me. I think these news outlets, um, you know, a lot of a lot of these spaces, like most jobs, people are there because of nepotism, mm-hmm. because they know somebody who knows right. somebody who can help them get in. A lot of these spaces are like that. And so I think they need to have more friends of color. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. They need to have more friends of color and more connections that um, they need to expand their network. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 No, I, I agree. I think like usually the onus is on the students to like make the connections. But 
I really do feel like it's on the employers to change how they hire and their culture and hiring practices. So to that effect, like have more friends of color, open that um, space up. Um, it can have a lasting effect for for the future. So I'm glad you mentioned that. I definitely agree. You know, uh, like it's not <laughs> enough just to have like for these organizations and companies to have like, you know, like we're going to hire three Latinos and five Blacks hire people because of the work that they do mm-hmm. not because it's gonna make your company pictures look great right mm-hmm. or it's gonna make your brochures look more inclusive do it because these people genuinely put in great work mm-hmm. and people like myself who are people of color that come from low-income communities we have a different stride we, we have a different level of passion and not to say that people who don't come from this community don't have that. We have a, a, a fire within us that was created so that we can survive the environment that we grew up in. That fire carries on into the work that we do and we're completely passionate and we don't half ass. I don't know if I could cuss on this podcast. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I should have, we should, I should have asked we don't have as the work that we do so to that I think that these companies should you know be more open in not just opening the doors to random people of color but talented people of color that very much exist right and obviously deserve to be there they deserve to be in the room at the table in all the positions too so yeah thanks for mentioning that for sure We are almost at time, so I have a few closing questions that I'd like to ask the guests that we have on here. So the first closing question is, what's the best advice you've received? I remember reading this when you like sent over the document, and I Mm -hmm. really thought about um, the advice that my professor gave me Mm -hmm. um, about chilling out (laughs) Mm -hmm. and waiting two years after Mm -hmm. my undergrad. I know I'm about to be in a time crunch and my life is going to completely change going into this school. And so these two years have definitely been so essential to my growth as an individual, mm-hmm. which is so separate from my life at, it, in my career, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Or even as a student, like the parts of your identities, the parts of yourself that you have to feed. It's always good to take a step back. That's great advice. And it's so hard to feed those things, right? Because mm-hmm. you're so focused on being a student and getting those grades and doing all these extracurriculars and building your resume. But essentially, none of these things matter because they are not who we are at the root. And so that time has been completely important. So that, yeah, I, I totally get people's need to just go and finish everything, get it over with and, you know, get a doctorate, you know, while they're still young and no gray hairs. but there's so much beauty into just allowing allowing time to just be a friend Mm -hmm. that's a great way to put it and then the second closing question is what's the best advice you could give your younger self you're doing your best and that is enough Mm -hmm. that's a great one thank you Well, thank you so much for speaking with me and the great advice you've shared and your experiences. Um, I feel so lucky to, to be able to chat with you today. So thank you. 
Thank you for having me. And I hope that people listening are able to get some type of, you know, help listening to this if they're interested in journalism, reporting, or what have you. Um, I am an undocumented, you know, woman, and I'm going to go get my master's at UC Berkeley. And so anything is possible, seriously. Thank you guys so much. SRA has been such a help. And without SRA, I don't think I'd be not only just speaking to you guys because you guys connected me, but because <laughs> they have been so much help through this whole ride. So thank you all. For our next episode, we're joined by SRA alumni Nathan Poros. Nathan is a product manager at Brilliant Home Technology. Tune in to our next episode to learn how Nathan made his path. Podcast is a program of Students Rising Above, a nonprofit organization working at the intersections of racial equity, education, and workforce development to create transformative change for low income first generation students. This podcast and all the services provided by SRA would not be possible without the generous support of our donors. Please consider making a donation to support our work by visiting studentsrisingabove.org, where you can also learn more about SRA. For more information on our podcast, check out at mypathpodcast on Instagram. Music created by SRA alum Alex Arango. And that's it for today. I'm Caitlin Endo. See you next time.